Welcome to the Living Shelter Podcast, where we explore ways to create healthy, energy-efficient, and joyful places to live. I'm your host, Terry Phelan, a Pacific Northwest native and an architect with over 30 years experience designing with a focus on sustainable options. I am delighted to be presenting this podcast series as the Director of Sustainable Practice at Borden Vellum, an integrated design firm based in Seattle. Living Shelter's goal is to help you expand your green knowledge toolkit so together we can help build a resilient future that includes comfortable and sustainable places for everyone to live. Our guests share their years of experience in one or more of the many facets of the green and natural building industries with topics like material choices for health and wellness, energy efficiency and carbon reduction, regenerative site design, waterway health, and other big picture ideas from thought leaders we think you'll find inspiring. In this episode of the Living Shelter podcast, we're going to delve into something near and dear to my heart, how what were once considered fringe natural building methodologies are finding their way into the codes and rules. Building codes set the tone for what is allowed and accepted across the land, which is a good thing, as they protect those who use the buildings from dangers such as structural failure, fire hazard, and other forms of physical harm. However, they can be limiting. In the early days of the green building movement, it was a real challenge to get a permit to build using materials and methods that were outside those the modern building industry was developed around. Thankfully, due to many years of work by a small and passionate group of people, Many of these outsider means and methods have been tried and tested by recognized organizations and are now starting to be included in our codes. One of the people that shepherded this into being is David Eisenberg. David is a friend and mentor on my sustainability journey, and I'm so honored to introduce him here. He is the head of the Development Center of Appropriate Technology based in Tucson, Arizona, and one of the primary change agents in the movement to include materials like straw bales, cob, light straw clay, hemp, and rammed earth into the building codes. Hi, David, and welcome to the program. Hi, Terry. Great to reconnect with you and uh, glad to be here. So you and I met at a straw bale workshop in Carnation, Washington, almost 30 years ago. Just, just as I was diving into the world of natural building. And I remember still today my two big takeaways from that. That was to use an inclusive approach when trying to push something new through for a building permit rather than being adversarial. And that because you are the instructor from out of town, you are considered the expert. <laughs> and I, I heard you say that a few times in you know, following years, and it's always put a smile on my face. So I'd like to talk about a few things today. Let's start with talking about how you got started with the Development Center. Well, it's, uh, DCAT is... Uh... An interesting entity that it actually began through a conversation that 
a, a good friend of mine and I, a guy named Bob Cook, who who actually worked with Buckminster Fuller on a number of things for a number of years. But anyway, Bob and I were talking about what our ideal job would be if we could like create, you know, our ideal work situation, what would it be? And I said uh, that I would love to have sort of a the ultimate shop where you, we could make or, you know, build anything. And with a, a number of other people who had different skills that I, I basically wanted to be the chief tinkerer. <laughs> anyway, we, we talked about this for quite a while and it was right at the end of of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union created this really interesting moment in, in the defense spending, and particularly with the national labs. And there was this peace scare that uh, <laughs> that almost broke out, resulting in a lot of people getting in the defense industries, engineers and people getting laid off, and the national labs kind of thinking about re you know kind of repurposing themselves and um so we had a meeting to talk about this idea of creating this center for you know basically for developing important I don't think we used the word sustainable appropriate technology was something that uh, interested me from the late 60s, early 70s, small is beautiful, you know, Schumacher, a lot of those, there was intermediate technology and appropriate technology. So anyway, we had we had a meeting and a whole bunch of engineers showed up and people who were kind of looking for something out, what the next thing to do was. And so we, we had a bunch of meetings and we decided to create a nonprofit organization and getting our our tax exempt status took way longer than we imagined uh-huh. by the time we finally got it you know the peace scare was over and all these guys had gone back to work in the defense industry and um, so, <laughs> um it was down to just a handful of us and we actually started working with habitat for humanity here in tucson based in tucson arizona I'm a native Tucsonan. Was uh, born here in, in 1949. And, wow. But anyway, um, <laughs> we started working with them, and we helped them design their first few solar um, houses. And we just started looking for things we could do. In the meantime, I, I, I was actually um, working as a construction superintendent, building mostly high-end custom homes, which wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing. But well, you also worked in a more, a very large project. I remember you were involved in, was it the Biodome? The or? Biosphere 2. So, Biosphere 2. Yeah, so so I, I ended up having an opportunity to go to work out at Biosphere 2, which is this three-plus acre and enclosed, sealed it was actually multiple structures, but anyway, um, and I ended up being the troubleshooter on site for the 
space frame and glazing systems the cover of the biosphere. And I spent three years out there working on that. But I had already built with Adobe and Rammed Earth. At, I guess shortly after the biosphere, I ended up getting involved in strawbale construction. What was that introduction? Was that inspired by a project in Tucson? or I had actually read about strawbale buildings in a couple of places. One in the Big Book Shelter, just spacing out the mm-hmm. name of them. Uh, that was Lloyd Kahn. Lloyd Kahn, yeah. And the, and there was a you know one page thing about hay bale houses in Nebraska, but also and I was a charter subscriber to Fine Home Building magazine after I had been a charter subscriber to Fine Woodworking because I was a woodworker for a long time. Oh, and there was an article in there about a straw bale studio in California that this guy John Hammond had designed and built. But it was really in 1992, I think it was, might have been 91, 92, there was a, an official precursor event to the Earth Summit in Rio that was called the Sonoran People's Summit. I had just started um, a little construction company with a friend and with my younger brother, which turned out was not a great thing. But that's another story. <laughs> yeah. Working with family can be interesting. <laughs> but but anyway, we I, th- there was a meeting uh, about the Sonoran People's Summit and they were interested in builders and build there was a there were two days of the week long thing where th- there were like half day sessions on housing needs. And somebody told me about it. And so I went to this thing and and they said, basically everybody introduced themselves. And I introduced myself as a new building contractor. And anyway, then they started talking about different people that were planning different parts of the, of the program. And they talked about Mott's Miramin. And they were really interested in straw bale and a lot of other things. But... Um, they were giving these little kind of presentations, slideshows about straw bale construction and doing little workshops. And Mott's had agreed to organize the two housing needs sessions. But that was right after this full page article on, you know, like the second section of the New York Times came out in which they interviewed them about straw bale construction and suddenly they were completely deluged with requests for information about straw bale. I mean, they were getting bags full of mail every day for months. It was insane. Oh my gosh. And so Moss had just bowed out of organizing that those two sessions and um, the person who was in, you know, talking about that said that they needed somebody to to take on that role and everybody looked at me. <laughs> you know how to do that. So somehow or other they wrangled me into saying I would do it. And and Mots and Judy actually gave presentations both days. I followed up on the various leads that Mots had 
you know, started with. He had gotten a couple of people to commit to doing things, and I got a bunch of other people. And so we put that all together. But that's where I met Mots and Judy. The three of us went down to some some project in Nogales together, and we started talking. And I started going to their little, you know, we their little workshops. And you know, before I realized it, I was sort of in it. <laughs> and that's so. That's how I got and started getting involved in Strawbale, and then and then I started teaching. Strawbale workshops for out, they're out on bail workshops, and in fact, Terry, when we met, I was I was teaching an out on bail workshop, the one that uh-huh. that you came to, and I was on a little tour, you know, teaching those workshops actually, one in California and Oregon and Washington, and one up on on uh, Whidbey Island, and one in Montana, and one in Idaho, and. Oh, so you were you were doing a tour, yeah, on the road, yeah, Johnny Strawseed or whatever, hayseed maybe. <laughs> <laughs> now, I remember something that Findhorn was part of your path too. Was that be- before or after you met Mots and Judy? Well, that was afterwards. So that was 1995. There was a conference at Findhorn called, I think, it was a. Eco Villages and Sustainable Communities mm-hmm. Conference, and I had heard about it, and um, and I actually knew very briefly knew one of the organizers of it, and I wrote and said, "I'd love to come to Scotland to, to Findhorn and and do a straw bale workshop at, at you know d- during this week long conference," and they said that would be great, and they put me in touch with the architect who was kind of, or the architects actually who were in charge of you know buildings at Findhorn and and I went and we we built the first strawbale building in Scotland oh. garden shed a sizable building I'm trying to remember what it was but uh, a good sized building really it was quite lovely and and I met a lot of amazing people at that conference. And that also connected me up with a few more people from the States who were really well known in in green building and architecture, including Bob Berkebile and Bill Reed. Aha. Uh-huh. You know, and so one of the interesting things that happened, my Involvement in Straw Bale and in Adobe and Ramdurth had led me to see how easy it was to seduce people into thinking they could build these alternative with these alternative materials, and how difficult, in fact, it turned out to be for them to get permits to actually get permission to use those yeah. materials in you know in projects where a building permit was required, and I was feeling like we were kind of seducing people into thinking they could do it and then, you know, leaving them to find out the reality of the challenge. That just didn't quite feel right to me. So I started helping people try and get permits. And and also we decided, Mats Meerman and I and a couple of other people, to see what it would take to maybe create a straw bale building code. 
and we ended up doing that. It took three years with the city of Tucson and Pima County with their building departments and with uh, the building codes committee that the joint city county committee that was set up. And and that, as I've described it, sort of put me out on the slippery slope down into building codes and standards, which is what I've spent a good deal of time over the last 20 years. For our listeners, you're listening to Living Shelter. I'm your host, Terry Phelan, and I'm talking with David Eisenberg of DCAT about bringing sustainability into the building codes. So what was the building sustainability into the codes program that you started? Yeah, so about that same time as the Findhorn thing happened, we had been at DCAP. There were like five or six or seven of us back then. Now that it's mostly just me, the David Center for Appropriate Technology. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's what I always said I didn't want it to be because I wanted to include other people. But anyway, um, we had been talking about how to, you know, make this shift happen in the building codes community. And so we came up with this idea of creating a program we called Building Sustainability into the Codes. And we saw it as a three-phase process, the first phase of which was, you know, basically describing why it was needed. And, and the second phase was the sort of educational phase of what it's about and how to think about these things and how to go about integrating some of these things into building projects instead of just re rejecting them out of hand. And the third phase was what we called transfer of leadership, which was that if we could get not just the building officials, but if we could get builders and the design community to buy into all this, that they could take over you know, the codes and standards part of that work. And we could go on and go back to doing the fun stuff that we thought we should be doing. <laughs> you didn't realize that you were going to be in this policy space for a good part of your career. <laughs> yeah, it never occurred to me that this was going to be my career. <laughs> a, few, a, a few interesting things happened uh, fairly early on. I mean, my first building experience, aside from things that were that involved my own family building an adobe dish addition onto our house, you know, doing mm. all kinds of work with in my father's my parents' window covering business, which ended up involving all kinds of things beyond things like draperies and Venetian blinds. My very first experience with a with a building inspector was uh, I was doing some wiring for, which my father had taught me how to do. For a friend of ours, they bought a house and it had a small building that they wanted to add on to in the back and turn into an apartment. And I was working on it and, and the, you know, they had a building permit and the building uh, 
it was concrete block and I was doing all this work to very carefully fish, you know, UF cables down through this, these concrete block <laughs> voids, you know, and breaking out little openings to install the outlet boxes and switches and all that stuff. And it turned out the inspector came. I didn't see him. He watched me work for about five minutes. And when he spoke, it it shocked me. It sort of scared me because I didn't realize there was anybody there. And he said, it's been years since I've seen anybody take the time and the care to do what you're doing. And I had all these questions for him. And I knew he knew a lot more than I knew about how to do things. And so I I just took him around and I pointed out these things that I wasn't quite sure how to do. And he told me the right way to do them. And so my very first engagement with a you know with somebody in the building department was this totally positive experience. And I sort of never let go of that notion that they actually know a lot. And but as I got into the whole building codes and alternative materials realm, it started feeling a lot more adversarial because most of the time they were telling us or telling people what they couldn't do and not how to do how to do it. Right, right. Well, and one of the things that makes so much sense to me in the way that the codes have changed is, you know, codes are written to protect health and safety. Right. And and yet, you know, there, there were so many limitations around looking at different ways that we can protect health and safety. And using natural materials and healthy materials is so much better for the people that occupy the buildings and the planet and, you know, the site. And, you know, looking through that lens, I'm sure... You know, must have been eye-opening. Well, well, part of it was really beginning to understand their frame of reference, actually, and mm. and the limitations. Uh, I, I should share this story, my Phoenix story, part because it's relevant to what we're talking about in this moment, but also it's my best story after all these years of okay. working. But, so, so in in 1997, so I had met this guy. Bob Fowler, who who was a building official. When I met him, he was a building official for Abilene, Texas. And I met him at a building officials association of Texas boat at a their uh, education week thing that they put on every year to, you know, teach code officials about the latest stuff on how to enforce the code or about changes in the codes and all that. And then I met him again a couple of years later at a similar thing, a bigger, the oldest one of those education weeks for for building officials in Colorado. And he and I, Bob Fowler and I ended up being put into the same session, like an afternoon session that was called Potpourri because it was just this mix of all kinds of different things. And Bob was presenting about, I think he was actually talking about um, this thing he had started trying to do, which was to consolidate the three regional model code groups in the U.S. into what became the International Code Council. 
and consolidate their codes. And I was talking about sustainability and codes, and I was talking about straw bale and, you know, alternatives. Anyway, Bob and I really hit it off and we became really good friends. And in 1997, the annual meeting of the the International Conference of Building Officials, ICBO, which was the building officials for the western half of the U.S., their annual conference was going to be in Phoenix. And Bob called me up and he said that he was putting together a plenary panel uh, for that conference about the consolidation that he was trying to make happen. He wanted to see the development of a performance code, not just a prescriptive code. Right. And so he asked me if I would be on this panel. And I said, I, well, I asked him a bunch of questions like, how long would we have? And he said about 20 minutes and, you know, some things about what he wanted me to talk about. And I asked him how big the audience would be. And he said, well, we get about 1,500 people to these conferences. They won't all be there. Probably only be like a 1,000. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> and I don't think I'd gotten up in front of 30 or 40 people at that point. And the idea of getting up in front of a 1,000 building officials was a little intimidating. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to say the least. But somehow or other, you know, I said yes. And then with I wasn't going to have any visuals in any. It was just going to be a 20-minute talk. So I wrote out a 20-minute talk, and I rehearsed it. And then, you know, eventually got to be that day in September of 97, and I went up to Phoenix and... Our session was the last session of the day. The session before ours ran halfway into our time. And so when it finally looked like they were wrapping up, Bob looked at his watch and he said, you know, I think we only have 10 minutes each because we only have half the time. Oh, and he wanted me to go first, too. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, I remember the feeling I, and it was probably very much, you know, a deer in the headlights kind of look on my face. I'm sure, you know, that I was going, oh, my God, what are my key points? Like, how am I going to turn a 20-minute talk into a 10-minute talk in two minutes? You know, like, and I realized there was no way I could do that. And I was just going to have to wing it. And so we, we got up there and sat down. Bob got up, introduced all the panelists introduced me, he sat down, I got up, I started talking. And I remember thinking a few minutes in that it was going really well. Like it just felt really good. And then a few minutes later, I was finishing up whatever point I was making. And I realized that I'd used my 10 minutes. And the ending that I had was dependent on the other 10 minutes of stuff uh -oh. that I hadn't talked about, that I didn't have time to talk about. And this is like the classic, you know, public speaking nightmare scenario. There, <laughs> I'm looking out at the sea of building officials trying to figure out what to say. And um, sort of a roar, you know, in my head, you know, oh my God. <laughs> and, <laughs> and while I was trying to figure out what to say, I realized that I was already talking. And what I said was something that I'd never thought before. So 
we all got to hear it at the for the first time at the same time, even though it was coming out of my mouth. What I said was, I, I want to ask you all a question. I said, when someone comes in your into your jurisdiction and they want to do something crazy like build a house out of bales of straw, or maybe they think they should be able to use the dirt, the earth, and do adobe or rammed earth or cob, something you've never heard of. Or maybe they think they should be able to use bamboo as a structural material. Or maybe they want to be off the electrical grid and have photovoltaic panels up on the roof and batteries. Or maybe they don't want to be connected to the sewer system and they want to put in composting toilets. Or, or maybe they're worried about electromagnetic fields and they don't want any electrical outlets in their bedroom. I said, what goes through your mind when people come in and ask for permission to do those kinds of things? I said, my guess is your first thought is these people need to be protected from themselves. And there was all this laughter because that is what they were thinking. And right. I said, and your next thought is not in my jurisdiction. And there was more laughter. And I said, now I want you to think about what's really going on because it's incredibly important. The vast majority of people who come in seeking permission to do those kinds of things have made a crucial discovery, which is that their lifestyle choices have consequences, many if not most of which are negative, but not negative for them, negative for their children and their children's children and my children, and your children. I said, those people are trying to take responsibility for the consequences of what they're doing. I said, is there anybody in this room who thinks that's a bad thing? He said, I don't think so. So I said, so what's your job as a building official? Is it to prevent those people from pursuing that goal, or is it to help them find the way to do it well and safely. And I remember I thought, shut up and sit down. <laughs> um, and I thanked them and I sat down to incredible applause. I mean, the room was electric. And I remember I sat down and I thought, what just happened? <laughs> yeah, what did I do? <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but it was really good. But how did I just, you know, in the last two minutes of a 10 minute talk to a a room full of building officials, cold. How did I just go you know, from that to, you know, reaching most of the people in this room? And as I thought about it, I realized a few things. One was that I didn't really tell them anything. I, I asked them some questions, some really good questions, as it turned out. I didn't make them wrong or bad. I invited them to a higher place from which they could do their work. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing that happened, everybody else, oh, the rest of the panel, they all gave their 20-minute talks, and our session oh. <laughs> ran into dinner time. But when it was over, there were at least 20 building officials who stood in line to talk to me, and they had a lot of different things to say or ask but there was one thread that went through all of those conversations, and it was that 
what I had talked about had never occurred to them before. They they, they never understood why anybody would want to do all that crazy stuff. They just, you know, they, they had no context for, you know, understanding that there were really good reasons to think differently about all that. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's really, I think, part of your legacy of opening people's eyes and building bridges. You're, you're such a humble man, and yet the things that you lead people towards considering and adopting, you know, they come from somewhere deep. And I've I've always always appreciated that and, and found myself humble in your presence. This is Terry Phelan. You're listening to Living Shelter. I'm talking with David Eisenberg of DCAT about making changes to the way building officials consider projects and look at materials. So, so you know, it was really interesting to... I've called that my Phoenix story or experience. I, I've called it finding the trailhead into the work because it, mm. it made it so clear to me that the work is an adversarial, that I want what they want. I don't want people building unsafe buildings. It's the last thing I want. But I have a much bigger risk profile when I think about the built environment than they do. And what do you mean by the a risk profile? You know, if you think about building codes, they're basically looking at a set of hazards attributable to the built environment. And they include things like fire, means of egress in an emergency. Can you get out of the building safely? The structural integrity, you know, you shouldn't get electrocuted. Uh, you you know, there needs to be adequate ventilation and heat and or cooling, although cooling is still not required. <laughs> no, but I think with climate change, that will likely be changing. Um, but, but, but basically, you know, you look at, you know, sanitation, you know, plumbing, all of these things that the codes deal with are about essentially safeguarding you know, occupants of buildings or, and people around buildings from what my friend Art Ludwig calls 19th century hazards. <laughs> they're not all 19th century hazards, but, you know, they're these really old basic kinds of hazards. I mean, even things like toxicity of materials, it's taken an incredibly long time and it's still hard to address the use of really hazardous chemicals in building materials or things like, you think about adobe, I mean, asbestos, think about formaldehyde, you think about lead, you know, these things were long, long, long after they were known hazards, they were still allowed. Oh, really? It wasn't the building regulatory community that eventually forced them to, you know, out of use. So that's one part of it, but buildings have lots of impacts, you know, away from the building site in the acquisition of resources. And, you know, all, all you now we talk about embodied energy 
embodied carbon. We, you know, we we talk about upstream and downstream life cycle. You know, we're looking at a whole different set of things than we used to, and some of those things are slowly being incorporated in, into the building codes. But it's a it's an uphill battle. And the assumption on the part of code officials is there's some other entity, you know, that's responsible for the rest of those things, those hazards. And part of our work has been to show them that that's not that is not a safe assumption. <laughs> you know, that, and that when they require, so we got involved with trying to get. Uh, halogenated flame retardants out of plastic foam building insulation because we're talking about chemicals that are dangerous, you know, in the parts per million, and they're putting pounds, you know, of this stuff in, in, into building insulation in, in our buildings. And and these are, they're awful chemicals. And, yeah. you know, so all there are all of these things that when you start to look at the full spectrum of hazards attributable to the built environment, you see there's a discrepancy between what the building codes cover and what those hazards actually include. Right. And what what the market still pushes because it might be economically advantageous. Yeah. And then you could look at something like climate change. We started talking a long, long time ago about buildings impacts on the climate and the climate's changing impacts on buildings. So like we design buildings thinking that the last 200 years of climate are going to persist, you know, and that the next 200 years or the next 10 years are gonna be like the last, you know, whatever period of time. And that's not right. the case. No. You know, we are finally starting to change our requirements based on the changes that are likely coming. But th th these things have all been really hard, you know, to, to drive up into view and then to get people to actually act on them. Right. It seems like the, the space that's got the most change, the most movement has been the energy codes. Yeah. And especially like in Washington State, we have a very strong energy code that every three years it gets, you know, the, right. the requirements become more and more stringent. Washington and California have really led the nation in, you know, the development and evolution really of energy right. codes. But I mean, there's also the superstorms and the, right. you know, the wind loads are changing and the... And apparently snow loads, as we're seeing. Uh, oh, yes, as we're seeing in <laughs> Yosemite. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, and lots of things about, well, how, how about sea level rise for coastal mm. cities? Um, yeah. And, flood, you know, flood zone. Uh, all of these things are, are changing. And our work has diversified a lot over the years. We got involved through EPA with doing work with with tribes with native american tribes and building codes and green building and not imposing codes on them but helping them evolve systems that would uh, enable them to incorporate their their world view actually into creating you know the communities and buildings you know that they want and need 
not based on mm-hmm. on our um, reductionist, you know, extraction based corporate commercialized product driven system, <laughs> um, but their but their own. And, yes. and and then through our work with EPA, we got invited to be the principal investigator in a in creating this report, which still hasn't been published in part because it got done during the Trump administration and had a bunch of stuff about climate change in it, so it couldn't see the light of day. But it was on resilient strategies to minimize building-related disaster debris. So really going back, you know, and looking at this whole sphere of things about how we could actually change how we build how we think about buildings, where we build, what we do, you know, whether it's high wind, earthquake, flood, fire, you know, all these things that, you know, hurricanes, tornadoes, all that stuff that generate these gigantic amounts of often hazardous building-related debris, you know, like what can we do, what kind of resilient strategies are out there to change, you know, both existing buildings, but also change how we're thinking and what we're designing and building, you know, now to, with the goal of having, you know, more sustainable, durable, you know, structures, less hazard, you know, all of that stuff. So so the the other thing I want to mention is that over the years, our work with, you know, in codes, because of things like straw bale, that was really the the first the first place that we started thinking we might get straw bale into the building codes. And we did in Tucson and Pima County and in California. And, and then eventually um, and they're they're in the international residential code now. <laughs> in twenty thirteen we got the, the straw bale and the light straw clay uh, appendices approved for the 2015 uh in international residential code and and since then so the, the things we've worked on so there's a tiny house appendix there's uh cob construction there's hempcrete the yeah. newest one is hemp lime or hempcrete hemp hemp lime construction and we've also we've also twice rescued the adobe provisions in the international building code the commercial construction code not the residential code and a variety of other things just recently we got some changes made for i'm trying to remember the exact name of that section but it's like basically rebel trench gravel trench oh rebel rebel trench foundations i We've used those successfully on a couple of projects, but they always had to go in as an alternative method. Yeah, so so we've we expanded how they can be used, although there are seismic limitations and other things, but you can now use them for slab on grade. Basically, you don't have to dig as deep, you don't have to use as much mm-hmm. concrete. So we just got that change into the it'll be in the twenty twenty four IRC as well. Nice. But anyway, just there's a whole a whole set of things that are now that were alternative and kind of impossible 
or not impossible, but really difficult, you know, that are now in the code. And I know that, I mean, we've skipped a a big portion of the kind of the uh, path that you, you went from that speaking engagement in Phoenix to where you are today with all the work with the the building officials being on the the national what was it the national board of building officials well so I wasn't on the board what, what the interesting thing that happened was I ended up on the national board of the US Green Building Council okay and there I created the US GBC code committee which I founded and then chaired for the nine years of its existence. While I was on that committee and on the board, I started working to get a a board-level memorandum of understanding between the U.S. Green Building Council and the International Code Council, which is the national organization that Bob Fowler, you know, basically helped create mm-hmm. and, and you know all the i codes are under their umbrella and in 2007 i got to sign the mou between usgbc and icc to work together what various things came out of that one was the international green construction code one of the really funny things that happened over the years, first with the International Conference of Building Officials, ICBO, and then with ICC, ICBO had a, their magazine was uh, Building Standards, and we got invited to do some feature issues on alternative materials and sustainability, and eventually they gave me a regular column in their magazine called Building Codes for a Small Planet. They named it, actually. That's so cool. (laughs) And then after the consolidation, it moved into Building Safety Journal, which was ICC's, is ICC's magazine. And so I wrote, I think, a couple of years, I had a column in that magazine as well. And we did more features on green building and all of that stuff. And and then one day in, in early 2007... I went to the post office, opened up the post office box, and all all of those features, every time some green building thing showed up in those magazines, it was because we had initiated it and, you know, had pulled together the people that wrote the articles and wrote some of them ourselves. Anyway, I go to the post office, I pull out this, the, the current issue, that current issue of building safety journal and on the on the cover is a picture of the of the national association of realtors lead silver building in downtown you know washington dc you can see the capital in the in the background and and icc had leased two floors they moved they moved their headquarters to dc and and i'll say something more about that momentarily but anyway so there's a picture of their new headquarters building the real estate building in dc and i open it up and the magazine's filled with stuff about green building and i'm looking at it and i'm going 
what? what? <laughs> they did this. They did this without us. You know, my first reaction was the ego reaction. Like, how could they do this? You know, how could, and then, and then it took about 15 seconds. Yeah. It's like, this is my space. This is. I realized I went, oh, proof of concept phase three of our building sustainability into the codes three phase process. You know, it took 12 years. It only took 12 years. And they, you know, and they were doing it yeah. without us. Well, in 12 years, I mean, in the big scheme of things, that's not that long. So anyway, it was a, a really interesting moment. But before that, so Dominic Sims, I had met years before. Bob Fowler actually introduced introduced us. But Dom Sims was the... He was the CEO of the Southern Building Code Congress International before the consolidation was completed, I think. Anyway, he became the chief operating officer for ICC and now and for the last many years has been the CEO of the International Code Council. And he's a good friend. Anyway, he called me up one day when he was the in 2007 when he was the CEO, COO. And he said, you can't tell anybody about this. You're the first person I'm telling, because I have to tell somebody. And he said, I just signed the lease. And he said, so the ICC is moving their headquarters to D.C., and we just leased two floors in the National Association of Realtors' brand-new LEED Silver Building. ICC is going to be in a LEED Silver Building. And he was so excited about it. And he, he had to tell me first. And this was 2007. So this was really early in the, the movement. And then later that year, ICC gave DCAT their Affiliate of the Year Award, which, which usually goes to these big, <laughs> all kinds of big organizations. And then two months later, I think, at the Greenbuild Conference in Chicago, we got a National Leadership Award from... Um, from USGBC for the same body of work, probably the same decade of work. But that 2007 was a kind of a special year for, mm -hmm. for some recognition for what we'd been doing. Yeah. ASHRAE 189 was the thing I was trying to remember that's kind of grew out of that, that, that working together uh, with USGBC and ICC and then ASHRAE. And what, what is ASHRAE 179? What does that outline? One, one, uh, one, 189, I guess. It, it, it's a kind of a green building standard that's more, fo you know, it's focused more on HVAC kind of stuff and indoor environmental quality, but more, more than that. Okay. The, the, it was interesting, you know, the, the codes realm is one thing, the standards realm is different. They're, they're similar, but they're different. And I got my introduction into, into the ANSI, the American National Standards Institute, you know, process of consensus standard development when I was the vice chair of a, an ASTM subcommittee on sustainability for buildings. And while I was, I did that for five years and 
during that time we we created the the lowest tech ASTM standard I think in existence, which was I think it's twenty three ninety four or something. Anyway, it's a standard guide for the design of earthen building wall systems. Mm. And then Bruce King, a structural engineer in, in the, the Bay Area, who has a great nonprofit ecological building network, EBNet. Bruce got funding from the Getty Foundation, mm -hmm. mostly because of their interest in the preservation of historic uh, earthen buildings to create a basically to update that standard and create a structural appendix to go with it so yeah 2392 i think i think it's e ASTM e2392 that standard guide anyway all that work it's sort of been very interesting and educational to like see the insides of, you know, how, how, how that different sausages are made. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, you've always been an inspiration to me, the heart-centered path that you've taken, even through this bureaucratic maze. I really honor what you do and what you've done. I am curious, what inspires you? Well... My kids and grandkids, I guess, as much as anything. There's a great quote that I that I um, often start and end my presentations with, mm -hmm. which is yeah. a Jonas Salk quote. It's quite condensed <laughs> and pretty much says it all. And that is, our greatest responsibility is to be good ancestors. Mm. I love that quote. Yeah, it's pretty grounding, you know. Whoever you're talking, <laughs> whoever you're talking with, you know, or presenting to, to just say, "Here's the frame of reference that I try to be operating in in this work," you know. And I invite you to operate in that frame of reference as well. Like, what are we doing, and what does it mean, and who who benefits and who who pays, you know, in not just money. But in all these ways that um, the the real costs, you know, of what we're doing and the real benefits. Well, David, we are about out of time. I want you to let us know where can people go to find out more information. So probably the the, the um, we we have a an incredibly out of date website, which is dcat dcat dot net. But where I've been posting things that are more current is on a Facebook, a public Facebook group. It's called DCAT Group, and it's a it's a public Facebook page, and I upload files there. the 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 newest one is a a guide for to create straw bale emergency shelters. Mm. It came about my friend Bob Cook and Mots Meerman found out on bail. Mots was actually contacted, I think, by a woman who's been working with people in Ukraine. I think she's Ukrainian, but she's in the States. 
But anyway, through that network, there was kind of a a request that came, I think it came through Builders Without Borders. Um, but anyway, through Catherine Wanick to Mott's and then to us to, and we, we, we had done some work a long, long time ago with Strawbale Emergency Shelters. And so anyway, we created some new stuff, dragged in and updated some older resources and and put together this PDF file that is now on the uh, DCAT group Facebook page that you can find and download. So, you know, continue to work on all manner of things and working locally with Sustainable Tucson and the Tucson 2030 district, which is part of the national 2030 districts trying to deal with architecture 2030s, 2030 challenge and more. And, you know, so there's no shortage of things to do. No, no. Well, thank you. Thank you for everything you do. And thank you for being with us today. It was wonderful. Well, thanks for inviting. It's lovely to spend time with you, Terry. That was David Eisenberg of DCAT, the Development Center for Appropriate Technology. They are a nonprofit organization, so please support them if you'd like to see this work continue. I also want to thank everyone listening in and hope you'll tune in again for more in-depth conversations with inspirational guests from the world of sustainable design. The Living Shelter Podcast is a project of Borden Bellum, a multidisciplinary design firm practicing architecture, interior design, and landscape architecture for residential, commercial, and civic projects. From our studio in Seattle, I'm your host, Terry Phelan. Take care, and we'll talk again soon.